Blog Talk Radio. tonight is perfectionism. And before we get to that, let me introduce the good folks you'll be hearing from tonight. My name is Jean, and I'm your host. And along with me is Amanda, longtime co-host of the Bubble Hour and tireless recovery advocate. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Jean. How are you? <laughs> I am doing great. Coming off of You've a, had a wonderful busy weekend. I did, I did. I got to uh, get a little recovery language training this weekend, um, which is part of the recovery advocacy effort. So um, really cool uh, weekend, and uh, more to come on that. Oh, we can't wait to learn more about that. And yeah. our, our um, fearless third co-host, is Catherine, and Catherine recently celebrated two years of recovery and is the sweet bubbly voice from the East Coast. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Hi, Jean. Hi, Amanda. How are Hi, things Jean. in your world today? Yeah, everything's great. I, I didn't do anything as, as proactive as, as Amanda, I have to say. I I stayed sober. How about that? Hey, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> you know? <Me> <laughs> We got a lot of Our work guest stuff going on, so you know what? One day at a time. Exactly. That's right. And I also want to introduce to everyone our guest tonight. That's Lisa. Lisa is relatively new to recovery, has just celebrated 90 days of recovery, and she's not so new to perfectionism, though. Hi, Lisa. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm so glad to be here. Hooray for 90 days. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. Days. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yesterday, that was yesterday's celebration. Oh, Love that's it. That's amazing. Well, before we get rolling on our discussion, I want to take a quick minute and say hello to all of our listeners, and most especially our first-time listeners. I just looked at the stats on our website, and we have doubled our listenership in the last six months. So I want to say a huge thank you to everybody who listens and who shares uh, the Bubble Hour with their friends or with other people in recovery. Uh, We are all volunteers. We give our own time to do this, and um, it comes from the bottom of our hearts with gratitude and service. But to know that it's reaching people that are finding it helpful means the world to us. And so I just want to thank everybody that shares the Bubble Hour, tweets it, mentions it, refers it. Um, encourages us, encourages other people to listen. We cannot thank you enough. And we're having just a little pom-pom dance around here every time we see that people are listening. So thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Yeah, I wanted to just say thank you, everybody, um, too, because, you know, just from this, it's grown so much. And, you know, um, for us, it's, you know, just the more people we can reach, hopefully the more people we can help. So 
please spread, continue to spread the word. It's just really awesome stuff. Exactly. Well, let's get rolling on perfectionism because, you know, I'm a perfectionist and I don't want to get off Mm -hmm. track at all. Uh, When we are active in addiction, we feel like there's no one else in the whole world like us. We tell ourselves, alcoholics are screw-ups, they're losers, but I just seem to have developed this little drinking problem in spite of doing everything else in my life perfectly. I'm the most unlikely alcoholic ever. But, in fact, alcoholics share many common personality traits, and surprisingly, that includes perfectionism. So I want to read to you something I found on the website promises.com. It's an article um, called Perfectionism and Substance Abuse, Exploring the Hidden Connection. It says this, Some of the hidden reasons that underlie addiction often escape detection because no one is actually looking for them usually because the connection is unsuspected. Perfectionism is not necessarily a tendency that we would expect to find lurking in the background of an addict's life, but in fact, this personality characteristic is quite common among drug and alcohol abusers. To some extent, the perfectionism addiction connection is based on the need to still the inner voices of doubt and existential dissatisfaction that plagues perfectionists. But it's also important to note that perfectionism is a type of obsessive-compulsive behavior, and as such, it shares common characteristics with addiction that at least hint at some sort of deeper, mutually reinforcing relationship. The dialectical interplay between perfectionism and addiction likely strengthens the hold of each, making recovery from substance abuse all the more daunting for those who must overcome a way of reacting to adversity and difficult circumstances that make things worse instead of better. So does that ring true for listeners? I don't know, but I want to share with you something I personally wrote um, early in my recovery on my blog, Unpickled, about my own dance of perfectionism. I wrote this. If I volunteer enough, donate enough, am thin enough, pretty enough, organized enough, recognized enough, and generally moving fast enough that I'm difficult to target to hit with the stun gun of criticism. That twisted thinking wormed its way into my life and motivated my self-conscious, exhausting quest for perfection. It's caused me to do silly things like change outfits over and over again because nothing less than perfect allowed me to feel comfortable and confident. It has caused me to do dangerous things like diet to unhealthily low weights, And it has also led me to achieve impressive goals and receive positive recognition. Maybe it's not all bad, but I have had to sort it out. Well, one reader for whom those words resonated was Lisa, who's on the line with us tonight. And she wrote to me about exploring her own need to seek recovery. And now here we are, uh, three months later, and I'm thrilled to say that Lisa is enjoying successful recovery and is here tonight as our guest. So, Lisa, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey so far. Okay. Um, Thank you, first of all for all of you having me on the show. I'm just I'm so honored to be here because this has been a huge part of my recovery. The bubble hour has been a big part of my recovery. So thank you for inviting me to be on. I love um, that you're here. I think that the the best way for me to do this is to share with you a, a journal entry that I wrote back in March. So it's it's for those listeners who listen to a recorded version of this down the road. It's June now. Um but back in March um, 
I was keeping a journal, and I've kept a journal for several years, and um, I wrote in that. So I'd like to share that journal entry because it really describes my story. Um, Saturday night, I took my last drink of alcohol. This will be my second attempt at quitting alcohol forever because the truth of the matter is I haven't really believed I'm an alcoholic. In fact, I still don't believe it entirely. That little voice in my head says, I'm just a heavy drinker, but my gut tells me there's more to it. There's an unfortunate stigma in our society of how an alcoholic looks and behaves. For me, that image has always been someone who drinks during the day, who gets annihilated at every party and who clearly has a problem. And I'd just like to insert here, you're going to find many um, uh, notes that are, are steered towards perfectionism in this journal entry. So <laughs> looking back on it today and rereading it, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, back to the journal. In my mind, an alcoholic is not someone who has a strong marriage, a good relationship with her children, who runs a business, and who ran a marathon in November. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That just oh. screams perfection there. <laughs> um, but, I, but I know deep in the pit of my soul that I have a problem with alcohol and I need to stop drinking entirely. I never had a DUI, never went to jail, don't drink during the day unless we are on vacation or some other reason to celebrate, but I definitely have embarrassed myself on more than one occasion while under the influence of alcohol. My days are productive, but when 5 o'clock comes around, it's time to open the wine. I have a glass of wine while I'm making dinner, a glass of wine during dinner, and several more after my husband and I settle in for the evening. This has become my nightly ritual. I will be 30, 43, I wanted to say 34, haha. <laughs> I will be 43 years, years old in May, and enough is enough. I quit drinking in October without too much difficulty. However, parties and other social events sucked. Also, many people in my life assured me I didn't have a problem. Well, I've been thinking I drink too much for several years. Why would a voice inside my head be telling me I shouldn't drink so much if all was well? A few years ago, I was having a conversation with a family friend who quit drinking, and I said to him, sometimes I think I drink too much. His response was, if you're thinking about it, you probably do. That statement mm -hmm. hit pretty hard, but not hard enough to stop myself from getting smashed that night and saying some pretty terrible things to someone I love. That was three years ago and it has taken me that long to figure it out. So here I am today, three days into my new life of sobriety, and I'm getting through it. I love my wine, but I don't love thinking that I might be drinking too much all the time. I began reading a blog called Unpickled last year and immediately felt a connection to the author, Jean. I even reached out to her for help. She very kindly wrote back to me and nudged me to finally make the decision to quit drinking. I did quit in October while I was training for the marathon, but after 30 days without alcohol, I'd convinced myself that I didn't have a problem, and so I began to have a drink here and there. When she reached out to me after the holidays to check on my prog progress, I informed her that I was able to have a casual drink here and there and that I appreciated her help, but I was fine. I didn't get a response. So fast forward to Sunday morning when I woke up with that pit in my stomach again and the knowing feeling that I really needed to stop. I sent Jean an email, not knowing if she'd even remember me, and headed off to the park for a run. And I have to say that I'm, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not um, a largely religious person. And uh, during this run, I prayed to God harder than I have ever prayed in my life. Every single step I took 
around that three-mile run, I prayed for help. I prayed that he would give me a sign and show me which direction and which life I was going to lead. Was I going to take the easy road in my mind and keep on drinking and not tell anybody what was going on, or was I going to make the tough choice and stop? And when I got back to the car, I was shocked to see an email from Jean. It was a long email, but the following sentences dropped me to my knees, and I started to cry. I'm sorry, I get really choked up because this is, this is just <laughs> such, such an emotional thing that happened. So her email says, then your email arrives and I smile. Someone is looking out for you. Someone, something arranged the chess pieces today so that you'd have an ear when you needed it. And I just wanted you to know that. So that's when I knew I needed to do this. And it was it was such a lightning bolt. Um, I'd never had anything that profound happen to me. But I knew I could do it. So... Um, that's the end of my journal entry, and yesterday I celebrated three months of sobriety. And oh, I'm just, awesome. I'm so happy to be able to say those words because my first month was hell. And there were days when I got out of bed and I put the kids on the bus, and then I climbed back into bed and cried. And I had mm-hmm. no idea why I was crying, but I just let it pour out of me. I was fortunate enough to meet Catherine and some other really incredible women at the height of my mania. And um, it was a really scary time. I'd never felt so out of control before because, after all, I want to be perfect. And so Mm -hmm. this unknown feeling was terrifying. And driving, I drove an hour away to go meet these people that I met on the Internet. That was beyond uncomfortable. But at the time, I was willing to do whatever I could to help myself. And I can say today what I've learned in the last three months is to allow my feelings to come through, to try to live in the moment, to acknowledge my egocentric way of thinking, and and that I'm damn lucky. I've I've learned that people with addictions don't all look and act the same way, but we're all connected, and we can help each other. And I have a million things today to be grateful for, and you ladies have been instrumental to my sobriety. So I just want to say from the bottom of my heart and the pit of my soul, thank you. Aww. Lisa, that's so beautiful. And you're here today. You're helping someone by telling your story, probably many people. And um, it's it's so good of you to just share and be so open. It's it's amazing. I have to tell you that, and share with our listeners, that that morning you talk about where you, you sent that email, uh, I had no idea you were out for a run and looking for answers. But I read your email, and normally I'll take my time before I answer someone, because I really like to think about maybe what they need or what kind of um, encouragement they need. But something just really told me that day, she needs to hear that she's not alone. Like, just, I just felt very urgently that you needed to know that. And so it's just so cool to know that, um, you know, there are, there's definitely, there's definitely something up there that makes, that, that puts us all in connection with each other. And it's, it's really cool. I just really celebrate that with you today. Um, Catherine, I'm I'm really struck, Lisa, by um, you mentioned a few different times in the journal entry about your gut telling you, your voice in your head, sort of that that bottom of your heart voice um, really insisting, you know, this is the truth, this is the truth. 
Um, mm-hmm. And just for anybody who's listening, I think it's so important because I had the same thing for 15 years, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I just yeah. I didn't listen. And and the interesting part, and, and we did an episode recently on ego. I feel like when we're trying to discern between what's the voice of our greatest and highest self versus our ego voice the ego voice is so strident and that's the one that said oh you're okay yeah you know and then you said and 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 our egos are so strong i mean that's what helps us be such perfectionists um i'm just i'm really struck by this intuition um message that's that came through loud and clear for me thank you yes well i'm certainly grateful for it myself and i'm trying to learn to listen to that a lot yeah more now than that at that time it was it was a very loud message and when i go through thank goodness i kept so many journals because i could go through years of them to see wow this is a consistent Mm -hmm. message that i kept on talking about Uh, but i'm i'm practicing now just trying to hear that hear that voice by letting my ego be quiet (laughs) yes yeah, that's hard. Wow. This is Jean, and you know, I think that, that that ego will really drive perfectionism because it's the thing that tells mm-hmm. you as well that everybody's watching. You are the glue that holds the universe together. You better get it right. <laughs> and you yeah. uh, get exhausted from obeying those commands, and that's why we seek comfort wherever we can get it, you know. And for a while, uh, drinking will do the trick um, until it yeah. doesn't anymore. And, it, you know, it's a pretty inevitable fate. I mean, um, there, there's a lot of behaviors that take the pressure off, and too much of anything isn't good for us. And, and, and certainly the drinking pathway is one that, that does work for a little while, and, and then it really, really doesn't. But let's explore perfectionism a little bit. I want to read something to you and see if, if it resonates with you all. Um, this is more from that Promises.com article, and it goes on to say, The great irony of perfectionism is that it makes failure all but inevitable because perfectionists insist on a level of performance that's impossible to achieve in the vast majority of instances. They must constantly cope with feelings of frustration, disappointment, guilt, shame, and personal inadequacy. Perfectionists live in a state of constant psychological tension which leaves them vulnerable to the soothing and sedating touch of alcohol. Lisa, did you find that balance between being perfect and setting yourself up for failure to to play out in your life? Did that play a role in how you used alcohol? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I guess I'll I'll start with with growing up. Perfectionism was demonstrated in my family as the way you live. You. Should and I was rewarded for it. So your clothes should be perfect. The lawn should be perfectly manicured. The home should be perfectly clean. The car should be perfectly clean. So um, it, it was that was kind of drilled in. Unfortunately, I, I have a history of family members who are alcoholics and perfectionists. So it was demonstrated. And as I got older, um, and I think most important, the thing that that really stands out today with with me being older and, and looking at my perfectionist ways and how it affected me is that I raise my hand for everything. I am going to be the best volunteer. I'm going to be the best leader in any organization that I belong to and on and on and on. And 
And what happens with that and what has happened with that is I've set myself up for complete failure because I can't do it all. I can't be the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect hostess, and and the perfect business owner, and on and on and on. And so, um, yeah, at the end of the day, the wine was my present. It was my treat because I'm the perfect woman. <laughs> so <laughs> I deserve mm-hmm. a wine. Of course I do. And, and then three more after that. So um, it, it just, it, it, con- it continued on and on and on. And, and the wine was just, the wine was my treat. It was the way that I would unwind and relax and try to de-stress from all of the things that I had put on my plate. And so how do you deal with it now, Lisa? Are you less of a perfectionist or do you de-stress differently? Oh, God, no, I'm not less of a perfectionist. I wish I was. I'm working on it. It's it's a work in progress. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I would love to, if, I, if the, the ego side of me wants to tell you, yes, of course. <laughs> I've got that one. I've got that one too, but no. Um, I, you know, I... Um, in the beginning of my sobriety, I reached out to my family members. I actually sent an email to my family, and I told them through an email that I had a problem with alcohol and I needed to quit. And for me, that was a way to be to hold myself accountable, but it was also way, a way for me to say, hey, guess what, everybody? I'm not perfect. I need help because I'm the one that helps everybody else. I'm the oldest of the family, and that's been my role. I help everybody else, and I'm perfect, so I don't need help myself. And I was in such a bad place that I was ready to say, oh, my God, I can't do this. I need help, and I need them to know that I need help. So um, I did that. I sent that email out, and that was one of the ways for me to kind of unravel this 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 big mess that I had, had made in my life and to try to um, get people to see me for who I really am, which is a vulnerable person and somebody who who needs help sometimes, who can't do it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's, that was one thing I did. And the other thing, I, I have made a commitment not to volunteer for any activities for a year. I made that commitment to myself in my journal when I first started writing because I realized I was just involved in way too many things. And it's really hard not to raise your hand. And I've got to say, I think that women in general really put pressure on each other, um, mm-hmm. especially when you have kids in school, to be involved in PTA and in dances and um, May Day and anything that you can possibly imagine. I'm getting emails almost every day requesting me to help with something. And mm-hmm. I just finally had to put a lid on it and say, you know what, I am not going to raise my hand this year. I need a break. I'm going to give myself a break, and I'm not going to do any of that. And if people don't like it and they don't like me for that, then so be it. That's going to have to be okay. And I've told people openly, I'm not, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm, I'm not volunteering for a year. I need a break. And how's that been received? That must have been, you felt vulnerable doing that. How, what was the response you got? The response has been has has been positive. I mean, they either just kind of say okay, or you can tell when people get a little bit uncomfortable. 
and maybe want to change the subject a bit. But generally, I think people respect it. And it most mostly people are saying, wow, that's really cool that you're doing that. And, you know, I think that they just see um, I, I've had too much. And clearly my name is at the top of the charts for every activity that's gone on in the school. So <laughs> there's no reason why I can't take a break at this point and feel, you know, feel okay about it. And quite frankly, I think that there's no reason why anyone, regardless of how much time they've put in and volunteer efforts or whatever, um, should feel the desire to put to give their time for something that's not fulfilling them. And that's what was happening. I was getting ticked off because I had to decorate for a school dance that I volunteered to do. But then I'd get mad that I was doing it on a Friday night when I really wanted to drink some wine. And I'm, you know, I'm stuck at hours at the school, and the people who said that they were going to be there to help me didn't show up. And you know, that kind of stuff just started happening all the time, where I was just feeling more resentful about the things that I should be really happy to give of myself. So there are times today that if something really feels good for me, and I want to give it with with my heart, and like what Catherine said, with the pit of you know that that inner self. I give, but otherwise, if it's just my ego saying you should do this because you should, uh, because people will like you, then I, I'm just uh, forget it. I'm not going to do it. Do you? This, this is, is Catherine. I, I feel like oh, I'm sorry, Jean. Go ahead. Go ahead, Catherine. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say that this that whole um, you know showing up like Superwoman and then having that lead to resentment. I mean, that was so me. It was. You know, being perfect was such a great way to feed sort of my victim-y <clears throat> state of mind, which then justified my drinking. And I, I read an article one time, it's a, a Harvard Business Review article about leadership styles. And one of the leadership styles is called pace setter. And this has nothing to do with recovery, but it, this really resonates with me that it was, it says that a pace setter comes in and sets such high standards for him or herself that then no one can keep up and it ends up demotivating a team um, because they're, they feel hmm. like, well, you know, forget it. I can't, I can't do everything that she does. So I'm just not going to, which I kind of heard shades of in your story where people are like, Oh, forget it. Lisa's perfect. So I'm just not going to show up for decorating the dance. Um, and I remember reading that article. It was probably 10 years ago and saying, Oh, shoot, I think that's me at work, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I did, you know, work on that. And, uh, and I, I think I've gotten a lot better at it now in, in sobriety, but, um, that just struck me the, how it, it actually has the opposite effect is instead of people liking us, maybe they're demotivated, but then it does, it serves this great role of the, the justification to drink because I'm mad <laughs> This is, I think that's central to our discussion, and it's something I hope everyone sees as a takeaway, is that perfectionism, on one hand, is one way to compensate for for our feelings of inadequacy. When I, I used to brag, this is Jean, I used to brag about being a perfectionist. So I'm a perfectionist, and I raise everyone's performance levels because... And I thought it was a great character quality. I mean, I I was very proud of that. And you bet I'm untouchable. Just try and keep up, you know. Just, you know, you'll be better just for trying to keep up with me. And then when uh, I started to read about it and realized, oh, it's a huge character flaw. It's a sign of 
weakness and overcompensation, I, 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 what could you do but laugh, you know, and think, oh, boy, did I fool the world? I sure fooled myself. But it is central to fueling addiction. That is why it's such a common trait among people that struggle with addiction because, I mean, it may be a pre-existing way of functioning in the world, but, boy, let me tell you, that that disease, that addiction will grab onto um, whatever personality traits it can use to fuel, to keep you drinking, right? And it's just a little, it's a way that your mind works. It's a way that, that the booze keeps hanging on. And um, and I think that's that's central to why we all need to acknowledge it for what it is. This is Amanda, Lisa, what were you going to say there? Oh, oh, Lisa. Go ahead, Lisa. Um, sorry, I just wanted to, I wanted to, to follow up with that, um, I didn't hear, I didn't even know that that was a perfectionism was a ugly, bad thing until three months ago when I was actually at a meeting with Catherine and there was another lady in the room and I was saying, I'm the person that does the Halloween decorations crazy at my house that everybody's like, oh, it's great. And I'm the one that goes overboard at Christmas. And we were talking about that. And I was saying that with pride. And one of the ladies in the group looked at me and said, people like you make me feel inadequate. And Mm. it was the first time I ever saw it from that side. I mean, I thought that I was doing something that when people came to my home and I'd have a big party that I was making them feel good. I had never dreamed I was making them feel inadequate. So to Mm -hmm. see it from that perspective completely changed my mind about it. But it's still something I, I struggle with on a daily basis because I've been doing it for 43 years. Yeah. Let me read you something because that leads perfectly into the next thing I want to talk about, which is perfectionism and comparison to others. There's a great article in Psychology Today by Mel Schwartz about perfectionists and addiction. And it says this, usually we strive towards being perfect to compensate for a sense of inadequacy. People who want to be perfect usually have an exaggerated sense of their own shortcomings. They typically received messages early in life that they weren't good enough. So they decided that not only um, that only by being perfect would they be beyond reproach. With such an affliction, we might look at perfectionism as a compensation for early life experiences that violated someone's well-being and self-esteem. As a compensatory response, Um, I hope I said that right, compensatory response, the drive towards perfectionism is erroneously sought as a solution. Perfectionists tend to think that other people are somehow better and superior to them, so they need to be without flaw just to catch up. This is a terribly damaging myth. Catherine, let me pick on you for a minute. Does that ring true for you at all? Do you see that in yourself or in others? I, I didn't know my life story was outlined in psychology today. Um, <laughs> evidently. <laughs> there it is, Mel Schwartz. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Your picture was on the um, article. <laughs> yeah, there it was. So, well, no, it, this is so interesting. Um, you know, for me, Growing up in in an environment that had um, quite a bit of, of instability, if funny enough, it was not the type of environment where somebody would say, you have to get all A's, you have to come in first, you have to be perfect. That actually was not happening in the least. 
But the messaging of the environment that I adopted was that if I'm perfect, so it says, you know, you'll be beyond reproach. And for me, that was my effort to create safety and to mm-hmm. to not make waves. Like I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to create. Now, that attempt to control my environment was totally flawed because it didn't matter what I was going to do. I, you know, and, and I, I shared this um, at a recovery meeting recently and somebody said, well, I did the opposite and I just became a complete derelict and broke all the rules. So I guess that's sort of two sides of the same coin of controlling your environment, trying to create some sense of safety. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I don't think of it as a sign of weakness. I really see it strongly as a sign of my fear. Um, and I only actually very recently at work, this came through, and and my and, and a friend of mine in in recovery says to me, you know, you're just going to have to get comfortable letting your slip show. And I'm like, no, anything but that. But she says, you know, you have to learn how to sit with the fear. And what when I sat with the fear, a message came through very strongly for me in my head, which was, I believe that if I'm not perfect, I'm incompetent. So I'm not working a million hours a day at work and responding to every email to try to get ahead or to try to be better than you. I'm actually doing it just to set a baseline of being okay. And I think I've said this on, I think I said this last week on the program, but it's it's something that's really been true to me that a, a friend of mine um, in recovery says that the two biggest lies are I'm okay and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And in my house, it was, you know, everything has to look good to to sort of cover up all of the damage that was that was happening. Um, and so I was deeply committed to the I'm okay. Um, my my recovery has been slow, slow. I've Lisa, you and I have talked about this, you know, slow to kind of come through and connect with other people and be vulnerable. Um, because I'm so committed to these, um, to these lies that I'm okay and everything's fine. And and me being okay means I'm perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's, it's a lot of fear underneath all of that for me. So Lisa, you don't, or Catherine, you don't feel like everyone else needs to be perfect. You feel like you want to just get by undetected. So if you if you do things perfectly, right. you won't get noticed and criticized, right? Or right, noticed like and singled get, out. Yeah, you won't you won't find out that really at the heart of it, I'm a loser. Aww. You know, or at the heart of it, I'm incompetent, or you know that I'm fundamentally broken and not good enough. And and let me say too that you know one of the things that can be challenging in recovery is you kind of grow um and learn and and if you start hearing the messages of well what's your role in this mm-hmm. I I'd like to say that although my role in my environment as a child was not my fault my role in what what happened in my life is that I adopted this mantle of perfectionism and I made it part of my of my DNA, and I carried that around with me, and that's my role, and that's that's what I have to acknowledge and see it coming, flag it, you know, throw a flag in the play when I'm trying to be perfect, and then you know 
do something different, even if it just means reaching out to somebody to say, I'm totally overwhelmed, I'm not good enough, I'm going to fail at work, it's it's all going to come crashing down. Um, so, Catherine, do, this is Jean. Do you feel like um, getting grounded in the moment helps with perfectionism? Like I sense that it's tied a little bit to anxiety of p- projecting to how others are going to receive you or what's going to happen next if you're not perfect. So do, yeah. do you find that like just getting back in your body and thinking, okay, I feel my bum on the chair, I feel my lungs yeah. expanding, and I'm in this moment instead of getting running away with what might come next? Does that help, or what right. are some tools well, that you use? It does. I mean, my perfectionism is part of my grandiosity, so it, it's, it's, it's totally um, – it's flawed – uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? It 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 makes me believe things that aren't true. So when I say I have to do everything myself, mm-hmm. I always am alone in doing this. I have no help. I have to respond to every single email by the end of the day today. Um, I have to do all of these projects or. You know, like Lisa's example, it would be like, I, I always have to volunteer. I'm always the one volunteering. Like that's kind of ego voice is what goes on in my head. Mm-hmm. And and I, I try to watch myself for these absolutes, these words like always, everyone, no one, um, only, never. Like those absolute words are usually mm-hmm. the sign of my ego and my perfectionism is is right in there. So I think mindfulness is like, okay, really, let's get back to reality here and now. What emails do you actually have to respond to? What can you delegate? What help can you get? Do you really have to volunteer for this thing? Can you say no? I mean, I love Lisa's story about saying, I'm setting a boundary and I'm not going to volunteer for a year. I mean, that's that's a really challenging boundary to set for yourself when you're used to being perfect um, or at least trying to be perfect. (laughs) And, you know, the other interesting sort of thing here too is that um, I realized this recently that my, my perfectionism showed up in my, uh, in my previous marriage where it's, it's useful when you're perfect to have a foil and so, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, because then nobody, like, he was sort of behaving badly, and then I could just sort of look at how perfect she is, because then if I, if there were any little cracks in my in my routine, then no one would notice, because, um, so that's something that I sort of watch out for, too, is, is surround myself by pe- with people who are, um grounded and, and willing. I, I, I re-listened to last week's episode and our guest Joe said that people actually love her more now that she's, that she's real and she's not perfect and she's who she is. And you, you get authentic connections when you're reaching out to people. So those are some of my tools is like getting really reality-based in my thinking, watching for those absolutes, those words to come in my head. Um, and connecting with other people and, and asking for help, even if it's just to say, I'm overwhelmed. Guess what? Right. I'm not perfect. I'm overwhelmed. Okay, that's good direction. 
Um, I want to share an anecdote with you guys. I'm going to out my mom a little bit here, and if she happens to hear this, I hope she forgives me. But um, we were at a, an event, and um, uh, my mom is a very sweet lady, like just just, just the perfect grandma, sweet lady. And um, uh, some bridesmaids walked by, and my mom said in her sweet lady voice, something that is very similar to something I would have heard entirely growing up. She said, oh, that bridesmaid, she's a big girl, but gee, she's pretty. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow, I I didn't say anything, but I I had been preparing for this show. And I thought, you know, I think I know where my inner critic comes from. Because I think my mom grew up in an environment um, where um, it was, everything had to be qualified, you know, you didn't want to be too big on yourself, and you didn't. So, so she always sort of like just can't quite give a compliment completely. There's always got to be a little bit of a qualifying factor, and I don't know why it wasn't enough to just say, "Oh, that's a beautiful bridesmaid," you know? I, I mean, why, why put the terrible um, judgment in there? I mean, who cares? Why would you even say that? Why wouldn't you just say, "Wow, she looks great," but, but that is the kind of. Um, um, way of speaking that I grew up hearing. And like I said, my mom's very sweet and very kind. And what she meant to say was that the bridesmaid looked pretty, but it came out that way. And so I mm-hmm. now I, I think that's how I kind of developed that inner critic of, okay, like it's not enough to look pretty. <laughs> if you want that she just looks pretty, you better not attract any other kind of attention. So that inner critic plays a huge role in perfectionism. And um, I want to read you a little bit more from the Schwartz article. Oh, here, wait, first here's another great anecdote. This is from uh, The Heart of Addiction, a book by Dr. Lance Dodes. And there's a chapter, Addictive Behavior as a Rebellion Against Punitive Consequence. And he writes, severe, unrealistic self-criticism is a very common precipitant of addictive behavior. So the inner critic plays a significant role in uh, our life patterns. And um, the article by Mel Schwartz in Psychology Today says this, sometimes I learn that their inner dialogue, he's speaking of uh, patients with perfectionist qualities, their inner dialogue actually speaks in the second person. Rather than speaking in the first person, the I voice speaks even more critically by saying you. So rather than thinking, I shouldn't have done that, you might say, how could you have done that? And when this occurs, I inquire as to who is actually speaking. There's literally a measuring voice in many people that becomes a critical second party. Sometimes this simply replicates the childhood experience of the critical parent. The greater problem is that the victim of the childhood abuse integrates the measuring voice as his or her own. I have never encountered the second person voice speaking approvingly to oneself, only critically. So I'm curious. Um, whether any of you criticize, when you think about your inner dialogue, if you do something, you know, stupid or make a mistake, do you say, oh, what did I just do? Or do you say, oh, what were you thinking? Or, gee, what did you just do, you know? So, Amanda, I know that you are a little bit of a workaholic and that Uh uh, you are very, very driven. So I'm curious, what's your inner dialogue like? What's your inner critic like? 
Oh, well, I um, met a new friend this weekend, and she told me that I need a rubber band around my wrist to snap every time I criticize myself <laughs> throughout the day because I do it constantly. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, and I do it out loud, and I do the, do it out loud when I'm alone, too. And it's um, it's it's really interesting. Part of it for me, I think, is just it's such a habit, and I do I do walk through, but I... I mean, it's from it's it's it, I you know being having it called to my attention. Um, I realize that I do it in every action that I have, and I and I'm not I don't uh, I don't have like the worst feelings about myself. I'm I'm certainly I don't have like I'm you know I definitely have my own insecurities, but you know like. I guess um, work has always been the one thing to me that validated me. And, you know, going to this perfectionism thing, I didn't, I've never felt that everything in my life had to be perfect, although there are certain things, um, I, I, I think that and I say that out loud, but my, my ex-husband used to say to me, um, well, aren't you effing perfect? Like all the time, like, and it was mm. because, I was always doing things. I was, you know, getting promoted at work. You know, you know, the house was always straightened out. You know, the the yard. You know, there was. I, I built a part patio in the yard, and um, <laughs> he chose not to help me with it. And people would be say, "Oh, this is beautiful," and and I and I and he'd be like, "Yeah, she did it herself." And 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 um, <laughs> and last week you told us that you built a fireplace by yourself. <laughs> yeah. I you know, I did that, and you know, all these, all these different things, and I, and I never really, it never dawned on me that that was me trying to be perfect. But you know, me doing all those things, uh, or the fact that it made other people feel less than until, except for my ex-husband. I mean, he used to, you know, say like, "Oh, well, aren't you just perfect because you do all these different things?" And you know, everyone you know, loves you and all this stuff. And I never, it never occurred to me, like, you know, Lisa was saying that, like, by doing these things, um, you know, I was actually making him feel poorly about himself. Um, but, oh, I, you know, listening to this topic, it's a great topic, and I, my thoughts are all over the place. Um, I never thought of myself as a perfectionist. I did, you know, my mom did not raise me that way. She was very much a hippie and, you know, let everyone, you know, be as they will be. And I say that, but at the same time, like I, I, one of my chores was to vacuum the living room, and if I didn't move the furniture, she would make me do the whole thing over again. So I definitely have <laughs> some of that really trained in me, um, and I think that's where you know when, uh, for me, the perfectionism where where um, it it um, showed up in my disease is um, the workaholism, as you said, um, as. You know, if I worked harder and I did everything perfectly, I answered every email, like Catherine said, and finished every project, even if it required me working 88, you know, 80 hours a week, no one could ever criticize my drinking or say that I wasn't measuring up because how how dare you? Because I'm getting all these things done. Don't you see what I'm doing? And I never realized that that, that I was masking my, you know, behavior. Um by you know being perfect and or being a workaholic being being perfect in everything that I did I was um I was preventing anyone from criticizing me I was heading this them off the path. so the question now Amanda is you know you now that you're in recovery do you experience that differently has that I mean that hasn't um solved you you haven't stopped being a workaholic from what I can tell 
Yeah, so what's you know, different? it actually what, it has. What, I've learned has it? I've learned a lot about boundaries. I've changed, believe it or not, which is this is kind of scary. I've changed significantly <laughs> since I've gotten into recovery. And part of it was um, I had limitations when I first went back to work um, because I didn't have my license and I was dependent on a train schedule and on rides from people. So, um, <laughs> you know, um, I you know I couldn't you know it wasn't just a train schedule. So I I, I had um, very set times to my day. I had a start and an end, and so I had to learn to start saying no to things. And, and saying no to projects and saying, you know, this is what I have the ability to do during this given period of time. Um, and this went on for two years, and I, or you know, and if or almost two years, and I, I do, I don't think I would be capable of doing that today if I hadn't had to do it just to survive. Because I, you know, my my boss was in the habit of just giving me everything that came to his mind any thought that he had oh this would be a great idea he gave it to amanda because i would get it done and Mm -hmm. you know no matter i worked weekends i worked nights i worked ridiculous hours and you know i was known to get things done and then all of a sudden i wasn't getting things done and then yeah you want to talk about that inner critic then you know setting setting ourselves up for failure i was ripping myself apart so out of Mm self-preservation i finally said no I finally actually wow. said, no, I can't do this. And it was really, you know, we talk about we don't make change until we have enough pain. And that's what it really was. I was finding that I was absolutely, in this job that I love, I was absolutely miserable because I just could not measure up. I could not, I did not mm-hmm. have enough time in the day to do what I was do, taking on before. And then, you know, and there was also, I had new priorities in my life. I had to go to meetings every night. I went to a meeting every day for the first year of my recovery. And so um, mm-hmm. I had different, I, my priorities changed, and I had to shift my life. And so it took a lot of hard work and practice. And I find, and I can find, you know, now that my life has changed, I have my license back, you know, I have all these different, you know, I have flexibility in my life today. I have, a, I have to be very conscious of saying no and it, that came through, you know, sharing at meetings, people telling me, no, you can say no, or I would have people say no to me, you know, say, you know, you're saying no to this um, for different projects and even um, some of the stuff that, you know, we do with, you know, with the bubble hour or with, you know, recovery advocacy or with Shining Strong, you know, sometimes I, you know, um, as my life, maybe my work life is, like right now it's crazy i'm really really busy at work i have to kind of slow down on some of the other parts of my life i have to um i have to maintain balance otherwise i'm you know that that um because that inner critic in me is really powerful like (laughs) like my friend annie said you know get it put a rubber band on your wrist and uh snap Mm -hmm. it every time you, you you criticize yourself so um that's a that's a great idea actually i think we should all do that yeah, sale on rubber bands this week. Sudden spike in rubber band sales. All the bubble hour looks right. are rushing out. Mine will color coordinate with my outfit, so I need twelve rubber right. bands. <laughs> Lisa, you're listening quietly. Let me ask you: Does your inner critic speak to you in the first person or in the second person? Uh, you know, I've, I've been trying to think about that as as you guys were talking, and I think it's both. I, I'm pretty sure I go both ways, and it, um, 
it, it just depends on the situation. But I mean, I, I for sure say you idiot. You know, you jerk. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? Often. Mm-hmm. Why did you say that? Um, uh, it comes out out as you. And there's other times when it's I. But I, there's I think that it goes both ways for me. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who kind of did the same thing um, to me that had happened to you, Amanda. We were we were at some event, and I started to put myself down, and she pinched me. She's like, "What are you doing? Stop that!" <laughs> and you know, I thought again. I thought I was being vulnerable and being myself in that situation. I think there's just a really fine line with being vulnerable and being yourself and openly criticizing yourself and I hadn't Mm -hmm. realized that again before that moment and she made me feel really uncomfortable because I I did it again later and wherever we were and you know she kind of pinched me again was like stop it and I wanted to tell her to knock it off (laughs) you know she's trying to make me change you know she's trying to make me change who I am but at, at that right. time, I, I didn't get it. Now I do, and now I certainly appreciate it. At the moment, I really had no idea why she was telling me not to try to be. Because I, I typically do it trying to be funny. Like, oh, <laughs> I'm such an idiot. Do you think Look there's a I little did. part of you, Lisa, do you think there's a little part of you that does it because you're going to say it before someone else says it? Like, Absolutely. I'll say it funny, but I'm going to, you know. Yeah, you you do that? Well, for How sure. How about you, Catherine? Same. Sorry, sorry, Lisa. Catherine, do you That's do okay. the same thing? Do you find yourself sort of preempting the criticism? Oh, absolutely. I do that all the time. That's a that's a great way of, um, you know, heading you off at the pass because you're going to find out that I'm that I'm not good enough. Um, you know, and this voice, this you voice thing. I've actually been noticing that. I've I've started kind of journaling and. This really interesting thing has emerged where the journaling is almost a dialogue between the voice of my greatest and highest self and the voice of my ego. Whoa. And it's been really interesting. So the ego voice is quite strident and always speaks in the you and says things like, why are you doing this? You have terrible handwriting. Um if, if anybody finds this journal, you know they're going to know that you're that you're no good, um, and it, it's just very very critical. And it's always in the you when it pops hmm. in my head, and then I write it down, and then I notice that my my intuition or my greatest highest self is not as strident and is is definitely more in the solution. And something that I've learned in recovery is don't gossip, criticize, or complain. And mm-hmm. I think in in my experience, all three of those things are really tied to perfectionism and the underlying thing under all of them is fear and that inner critic. Um, my, in, in the three of those gossip, criticize, and complain, my, my biggest fault is the gossip one. Um, I think it's a, a way of like a subconscious way of trying to compare myself and like we were talking about before, but that's another helpful thing to keep in mind just as a tool. Like, am I gossiping? Am I criticizing? Am I complaining? Um, asking for help 
is not complaining. Um, but just saying, oh, you know, my kids are rat bastards and my husband's a rat bastard and everything, everybody's a rat bastard. Um, not helpful. That's complaining. Um, and that's usually your ego and fear voice, um, in my experience. And the connection with drinking with all of this is that being perfect is hard. I think, Gene, you're the one who said that where, on a recent episode where you said, like, then I had to drink to put a brick in my head to go to sleep because it was just so exhausting to be perfect. That's exactly. And I thought, wow, that's exactly right. <laughs> Worked really good for a year or two. Till it didn't, right? Till the wheels fell off the cart. Mm. <laughs> but I now, um, Lisa, you said that you have you hear both voices the 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 first person and the second person critic. Do you relate to what Catherine just said about maybe the second um, the second person voice, the the you? What have you just done? That's maybe the ego versus the higher self. That's a little more gentler. Definitely, I think that that makes perfect sense. Why I would hear both of them. Um, I, I think that when when I'm criticizing myself and the, with the, my ego self, and I'm just now learning about the different the difference between ego and and your higher self. I, mean, I didn't even know anything about any of that before I became sober and started my what I've been calling my research project for the past three months. <laughs> I have a pile of books, and my perfectionist way. Um, that's, you know, its own library up beside my bed right now. And so I just have started to, to to notice the differences between the two. So it's hard for me to answer because I can answer that honestly because I really haven't had a, enough time to really evaluate it and see when I am am talking to myself from an, from an ego perspective or when, when I'm really being true to my, you know, my highest self when that's coming mm-hmm. through. I would so like to homework. believe. Well, I'm, I don't know. I, today I even said I think I need a reprieve from the research project. Enough is enough. <laughs> I'm a little bit burned out with that too. <laughs> it well, good, it's such a good question. No, but that's a great point because because I think that where it can be very easy to get stuck in our in our intellect, like up in our head with our recovery, like I'm going to think my way through this. And I just, I think it's in my experience anyway, it's been important to link my heart and my spirit with my brain and have them all working together and sort of get out of the intellect and more into the gut of the feelings. Um, Definitely. And I think that takes work. That takes a lot of work and quiet work. That takes a lot of just being quiet, which I really don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that that's part of the that comes back to the perfectionist nature because if we're sitting and we're not doing anything, we feel vulnerable for criticism, right? You're being lazy. You're not mm-hmm. being productive. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to see you and think that what is oh she must have a lot of time on her hands again because you're out of your head and you're projecting into the future that the what ifs and what if someone sees me and da da. So it it is very hard for us. It makes us uncomfortable to just be reflective and uh, give ourselves the time and the space that we need to process this stuff. But honestly, that's so much what we need. Do you and find you know that, Amanda? You have... oh, I, just I, I just want to call on Amanda. Know... Sorry, Catherine, let me jump in and just pull Amanda in for a second because I know Amanda has a hard time sitting still. 
And I know that part of that is is just your your makeup. It's the way that you are, uh, Amanda. But is there a part of you that has a hard time sitting still because you don't want to be criticized for it? Yeah, you know, I don't even. I'm not even. I'm not even sure that that's why. I, I mean, I definitely have a hard time sitting still. Yeah, I guess it is. You know, I never thought of it that way. Because um, I don't. I don't have a lot of people around me to criticize me. Really, at this point, um, I'm trying to think of you know back when I had a husband living with me or something like that. But yeah, I guess. Mm. Hmm. I don't. I, I mean, I guess not so much. I don't know why I can't sit still. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I you know, that that you've given me something to think about. I really don't know how to answer it. I um. Okay, now you definitely have an issue now. for me. That's What's your that? assignment. Okay, Cass, that's your that's your homework now, Amanda. Now you have yeah. An I definitely did too. have to like when I do it though. When I just decide, actually, this is a good one. Um, last Sunday. I was tired, and it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had things to do, and it was a beautiful day, but I was absolutely exhausted, and so I needed to take a nap. I needed to take a nap, and I had to, like, give myself permission. Like, it's okay to go inside on a beautiful sunny day and, like, sleep for a half hour and and so that you can get these other things done, but, like, I had to qualify it, you know, because you're not, you know, you're not going to be able to, like, do the lawn and then be ready for the bubble hour unless you... You know, unless you you do give yourself a break, but I, it was I. Now that you mentioned that, I I had to like justify it in my head, like taking care of myself. I just needed to take care of myself. That's that's like perfectly okay. But I did feel like you know, oh, but I need to mow the lawn and this and that and um, yeah, I, I definitely there's there's a thought process that goes through it that I'm not even I don't even think I'm that aware of. This Catherine, let me come back to you now. Oh, I'm driving I don't even over. remember what I was going to say. It was it was something in the moment of what we were talking about. It's, it's okay. My apologies. And Lisa, do you still have your thought there? What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to um, piggyback, piggyback on what Amanda said about giving yourself permission to take time to take care of yourself. That's one of the things that I found is a huge shift in and what I've done in the last 90 days, and that is to, I have so many things to do throughout the day, but I have made it an absolute priority to sit outside in the morning and, and by my pond and drink a cup of coffee and take time to, to be quiet then or to go take a nap if I need it or to go for a walk in the woods because I know that gives me comfort. And what I found in doing that is that I have more energy to do all those tasks that I had before I did that activity because I did it. And and that sounds counterintuitive, but it's for me anyway, it's been so true. Because I have given myself what I need, I can still check off all the boxes that need to get done during the day that are important. And feel better about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, we're, we've um, rounded out our hour here, so I want to leave everyone with uh, a little hope for the recovering perfectionist. Um, so these are some final thoughts from the article on promises.com. They say this, the antidote for perfectionism is best taken in small doses. Perfectionists must practice letting go, forgiving themselves, accepting mistakes, 
and carrying themselves lightly as they make their way through the world. And each little successful effort to do so will function as a building block in the construction of a grand palace of achievement. On a day-to-day basis, it is possible for perfectionists to slowly but surely change their inner dialogue into something positive and uplifting. But like the addiction recovery process, defeating the perfectionist tendency requires deliberate, consistent, and determined effort. Snap, snap with the uh, rubber band on your wrist. And a view of the world that recognizes good things are only possible if we're patient enough to keep our intentions clearly in sight in each moment as we follow things through to the end. No one should try to conquer perfectionism all on his own, however. Addicts and alcoholics who recognize perfectionism in themselves need to talk about what they are thinking and feeling in their therapy sessions and in support group meetings. So, ladies, final thoughts. Lisa, as you hear those encouragements for recovering perfectionists and perfectionists in recovery, um, what what do you say as we uh, wrap up our hour here? I say give yourself um, an opportunity to just be okay, and be and and me, meaning that all of the boxes don't have to be checked, all of the um, stars don't have to be aligned in the day that you can just be and 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 everything else really can be let go. I think that I've always set myself up to um, not not be able to um, feel good about the tasks that I've done because I expect so much from myself. And the minute that I allowed myself some breathing room is kind of when things started to click for me that, okay, this is this day is going to be okay and, and I am enough. You hear that a lot, I am enough. I think that's the, the best um, way that I can look at how to shift your thinking and perfectionism. You've been so open and honest with us tonight, and it's just been a real treat to get to talk to you and to um, explore this topic with you. It's it, it, it's, I think we've really covered a lot of ground, and it it definitely is true that in talking to other people about it, we we find a lot of aha moments. Um, Catherine and Amanda, do you have any closing thoughts as we wrap up tonight? Um, this is Amanda. I was just going to say that, um, it kind of piggybacking on Lisa, one thing I think is helpful that people can do too is when you do accomplish something, like acknowledge it to yourself, like oh good job on that. Instead of, you know, change that inner voice to always being a critic to, you know, how about rewarding yourself sometime or acknowledging the things that you do accomplish, and not in a like, and just because just because it's something that you can accomplish, you know, not. Not like oh I got I got fifty things done today. Just like oh I got this little simple thing done. You know something that's just um, something I don't know something different. You know it, it's not you know not the not the regular list that you're used to or you know that the type of list that we've been talking about. And then um, my other comment is just um, the daily inspiration that um, I I found a post on the Bubble Hour website. Um, just rings so true to me, which is um, perfection is an illusion, and those who seek perfection will find themselves unfulfilled their whole lives. And mm. it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a really, really good thought. 
Ms. Catherine? Well, I'm just, I'm really, there's there's so much to think about in, in tonight's show. So thank you, Lisa and, and Jean and Amanda for, you know, the discussion. Um, I think for me, the biggest um, recovery that I've had in my perfectionism issues has been connecting with other people. So when I'm feeling overwhelmed, historically, my go-to was to push harder and to take on more and like, oh, I just have to work harder. Um, Instead, now it's just taking a pause and reaching out to some people in recovery and saying, I'm feeling really overwhelmed. I don't even, I don't know where to start with all this work, for example. Um, And just telling the truth on myself that I feel inadequate or that I'm overwhelmed or that I'm afraid um, and connecting with other people has been my gateway out of uh, the trap of perfectionism. Work in progress. I, mean, I was thinking when, when Lisa was was saying, you know, this is sort of her, her project and it's her, you know, work in progress. Maybe we should be like, you know, MTV or something, you know, where the stars, where are they now? Stars with a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, come back in like six months or, or, or a year or something. You know, come back on Lisa's one-year anniversary and say, where are they now? You know, has she gotten through the pile of books on her on her nightstand or has she just <laughs> thrown them out the window and said, forget it. You know? so I'm ready to put time, it away so. for a while. Well, I'm going to fess right. up to my baby step this week. I always color coordinate my travel mug with my outfit for the day. And this week I made myself <laughs> choose a travel mug that didn't match what I was wearing when I went to work. Um, and Good I was job. really off of my comfort Neutral. zone. And the day turned out okay. So there's hope for all <laughs> That's of us. That's amazing. <laughs> there is hope. <laughs> all right. Oh, well, thanks awesome. again, Lisa. It's such a treat to have you here. And Catherine and Amanda, I love you guys all so much. Um, Thank you. On behalf of, yeah, oh, it's just, it is such a pleasure to be part of the recovery advocacy movement by doing this show and sharing uh, of ourselves and each other, and it's just it's such a huge gift in all of our lives. So on behalf of all of us at the Bubble Hour, uh, our heartfelt thanks to everyone who participates in this show as a guest, as a listener, and as someone who, who helps others find us as well. And um, whether you're tuning in to support your own recovery or to help better understand a loved one in recovery, we're very grateful that you're all with us, and we hope you find our discussions useful, and we send out our warm wishes for strength and joy to every single one of you. Um, We ask that you would check out the website for our parent organization. That's shiningstrong.org, and there you will find links to all of our resources. That includes the Bubble Hour, which somehow you found your way to now because you're listening to it, but... That's where you go to find us again, as well as Crying Out Now, an incredible collection of stories and uh, anecdotes from people in recovery. You'll also find links to some other initiatives around recovery advocacy. And if you would like to go directly to the Bubble Hours website, that is thebubblehour.com. You can listen to our shows directly from there, or you can follow the link to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks again, everyone, and take good care. Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.